0: So every man uh No, we're not at the end, are we? This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, Before we begin our study, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1-9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity we have to gather together today to be refreshed by the study of your word. We pray that God, the Holy Spirit, would make these things clear to us. We thank you that we are not left to our own devices to try to understand scripture, but that we have the dwelling and the filling of the Holy Spirit to help us understand your word and to see its application and to empower us for the Christian life. Now, Father, we pray that as we study Your Word today, You would challenge us with the things we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2 and Revelation chapter 3 comprise the second major section in this book. The key structure of the book is laid out in verse 19 of the first chapter. At that point, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is speaking, commissions John, and he says, write the things which you have seen, and that includes the events of the first chapter when John is commissioned to write. Second, write the things which are, that's the second and third chapter, present tense in the church age. Write the things that are, and the things which will take place after this and that is the future event starting in chapter 4, verse 1. The speaker is the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord Jesus Christ continues to speak into the second chapter. He is addressing the uh, apostle, and he says, To the angel of the church of Ephesus right. Now, there is a format here. As we get into the second chapter and third chapter, there are... Seven letters. These are the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia. Okay. Trying to understand why my machine is taking on a life of its own. Seven letters to the seven churches that are in Asia. Asia is the, is it called the Proconsular province. It's a, because a Roman proconsul governed this province on the western side of what is today uh, Turkey. Ephesus is located down here on the lower left. It was a major uh, commercial uh, center, it was a major port, which we'll get into in a little bit. But these seven churches are located in the proconsular province of Asia. They are not on the same road. They're not uh, linked in any definite way, but, they're, but they are chosen for a particular purpose, which we will see in our study. Now, when you look at these sections, I want to uh, go through and give you an outline of these letters. There are seven... Sections or seven components of these seven letters. They don't all ha- have. They don't all have every component, but mostly they do. First, there is a commission and address that it is addressed to the church of Ephesus or Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, uh, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. The second is that there is a character reference. It is a citation that refers to an attribute of Christ as revealed in the first chapter. Now, there is one letter that has elements that, is, that, that are not part of the picture, the vision of Revelation 1. But the others all refer to one or two of the attributes of Christ or the appearance of Christ in the vision of Revelation 1. That is so important because it shows that Revelation 2 and 3 flow out of the vision of chapter 1, that the reason Jesus appears the way He does to John in the first chapter is foundational to understanding why these letters are the way they are and what is going on in the background. Third, there is a statement of commendation. I want you to notice just... Uh, by way of application, that when the Lord is going to critically evaluate, He always begins with something good. He starts on the positive. He says something that they are doing right. If there is something, there are two that are so bad that there's nothing good that can be said. But He always tries to pray something positive before He points out the flaws or failures in the local congregation fourth element that we have is the note of condemnation. There's a warning about a spiritual flaw or failure in the congregation. Then fifth, there is a correction. There's a prescription to advance spiritually. There is specific direction given as to some course of action that they should take. In five of the seven letters, they're told to repent, which means to change your direction or change your thinking. Then there is a call to hear, Let he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And note that in each one of these, it says, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, not to the church that's just been addressed, but to recognize that even though some of the flaws or failures of Thyatira may not be present in Ephesus, the potential it's still there, that that may be the, a flaw or failure there. So at some point as I go through this, I'm going to uh, probably when we finish, we will compile a list of all of the different things that are addressed in these seven letters. It's a checklist. There's about 18 or 20 different qualities, different spiritual uh, virtues that are evaluated in these seven letters. And that provides a good checklist for each and every one of us. There's a call to hear, and then there is a challenge. There's a personal challenge to the overcomer, to the person who perseveres, who hangs in until the very end. See, it's not just a matter of beginning well. It's a matter of ending well. It's a matter of consistency throughout your spiritual life. And it's one thing to be young and in your 20s or 30s, when sometimes you still have a holdover of a certain level of idealism from your adolescent years and you're running on the uh, energy left over from that time and maybe you were really messed up and some folks, they they really screw up their lives and they come to the Lord and they realize that this is a solution to their problems. And so for the next 10 or 15 years, they still remember how much they screwed up their own life and they are thankful to the Lord, and they grow. and They're filled with curiosity. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? They want to answer a lot of uh, questions they might have about different aspects of life. But what happens sometime when you've been a Christian 10, 15, 20 years, you've been involved in a local church ministry for that long, it's easy to become complacent. Somewhere along the line, you can watch people and all of a sudden they're going, they've just sort of shifted into automatic, and they are no longer driving their spiritual life volitionally. They're just going through the motions. Now, because they're going to Bible class and they're taking notes and their uh, friends, their social life is, is uh, directed around folks that they go to church with, sometimes it's five or ten years before they even realize that they're no longer uh, actively positive as they were when they were younger. And then some crisis comes along. They get hit with some major adversity, and the next thing you know, they're 55 or 60 years old, and they just sort of drop out. And it's amazing what can happen as we mature. There are different tests in life directed to different chronological ages, so that the tests that you face when you're a teen are different from the tests you face when you're in your 20s and 30s, they're different from the tests you face in your 40s or 50s, or when you're older. And so the issue is to learn the doc, learn doctrine, to apply doctrine, and consistently uh, uh, apply it, and hang in there, hoop on to endure. This is a word that's emphasized twice with the Ephesian church, verse two. I know your labor, your patience, the King James translates it, but it's endurance. It's hupomene. Remember, James emphasizes this as the key to spiritual growth. It is remaining under hoopo, meaning under meno, menace from the verb meno, to abide. It's to remain in the adversity, but you continue to apply doctrine. And so it is this emphasis on endurance. And it's repeated again. In verse 3, you have persevered and have endured because of my name and have not become weary. So this is a major attribute of the Ephesian church. These are endurers. These are people who hang in there. But they have a flaw. And this easily happens in churches that are concerned with what we believe. And this applies to many Bible churches historically, and I think it applies to many doctrinal churches. It doesn't mean that I'm not being critical. I'm not saying the Bible churches fall into this trap. But this is the trap we can fall into. We're not so likely to fall into some of the other flaws of the church of Thyatira or Pergamum. But this is one we can fall into. Because if you look at the Ephesian church, Jesus commends them because of their works, which he says of everyone, that is the production in their spiritual life, their labor, they're dedicated, they're involved, they're, they're involved in, in a Christian service, they're involved in uh, ministry in the local congregation, they're enduring in their spiritual life, and they cannot bear those who are evil. They're not going to put up with licentious believers like the Corinthians, they're not going to put up with carnal Christians who are operating on religion and human good, and they can't stand religiosity. And furthermore, they tested or examined those who claim to be apostles, but they're not. So they're doctrinally oriented. These people are primarily concerned that you have right theology and right doctrine, and justly so. But what happens and what has happened is a trend in throughout church history, is that churches go along being concerned with right doctrine and all of a sudden they somehow slip into neutral or slip into automatic and they lose focus on what it's all about. See, doctrine isn't the end result. The end result is to grow and mature as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ so that you glorify Him. It involves personal love for God, Impersonal love for all mankind and occupation with Christ. And this is the problem with the Ephesians is that the one negative is mentioned in verse 4 Never, Nevertheless, I have against you that you have left your first love. The first love is the Lord Jesus Christ, occupation with Christ. They're going through the motions. They. They have the right doctrine. They're focused on the truth, and that's good. It's not either or. See, one trap we fall into is we say, oh, we have to be more loving, more focused on Jesus, and doctrine goes out the window. See, it's not an either or. It's maintaining sound doctrine, but the end result or the end that we're focused on isn't just having right beliefs. Those right beliefs end in right attitude and a right relationship and a right focus in life. And so they're falling apart. This is the, seems to be the first area that goes is that uh, though they're maintaining orthodox theology, they're falling apart in terms of their ongoing day-to-day rapport and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the problem in Ephesus. So there, there's a challenge to endure, to overcome, to stay with it to the end to not just be focused on your Christian life when you're young, not just to begin well, but to end well. Now, the question we must address before we get into our detailed study of these seven letters to the seven churches is why these seven churches? As I pointed out in the map, these churches are not on a normal, in a normal traffic pattern. For example, if John were going to leave Ephesus, he would not necessarily go through each of these uh, towns. Uh, you have to, they're on different roads, different highways. They're not necessarily connected in any, uh, on any basis, on any uh, common commerce or anything of that nature. They are therefore chosen for specific reasons by the Holy Spirit. There are many other churches for, uh, in this area. For example, there's a church of Colossae is in this same area. There are other congregations. In Acts, the book of Acts, when Paul uh, first came into this area, he came up along from uh, down here in uh, southern Galatia, and he came across Asia, and he came up to the coast, and we're told in Acts that the Holy Spirit prohibited him from having a ministry in Asia. Then he wanted to head over here to Bithynia and Pontus, up here to the northwest. And once again, he was blocked by the Holy Spirit. So he heads back here to to um, Troas, and that's where he has the Macedonian vision, and he goes across to Neapolis, and begins his ministry there. Eventually at the end of the second missionary journey he comes back to Ephesus. And we're told in Acts chapter chapter eighteen that in Ephesus they sent out the the gospel went throughout Asia. So the timing wasn't right. It wasn't the right time for him to go to Asia initially, but now it was and he goes to Ephesus, and they sent out missionaries. He had a training school there, and they sent out people to all, all over Asia so that everyone heard the gospel. As a result of that, numerous churches were established throughout that province. Now, it, that was approximately um, 53 to 55 A.D. This is now 95 A.D. Forty years has gone by. So there are many congregations throughout the western part of Asia Minor and these congregations have grown to various sizes you can imagine that in a city like Ephesus which had a population of about 250 to 300,000 that by this time the con- there were several congregations and they were quite large 100 200 300 maybe 4 or 500 people in some of these congregations so the question we have to ask is why did the holy spirit choose these churches. Well, there are three views. The first is the prophetic view. This is really associated with hyper dispensationalism. Now hyper dispensationalism, the hyper means that they go beyond uh traditional dispensational teaching. And in dispensational teaching the church is distinct from Israel. That's true for in hyper dispensationalism. But for in, in dispensational teaching the church begins on the day of Pentecost. There is no more because of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is the key issue in the church. And in the church, there is no more Jew, no more Greek, no more slaver or free, for we are all one in Christ. We are all baptized into the body of Christ. And so, hyperdispensationalists come along and they say, no, the church really didn't begin in Acts. That's a, too much of a Jewish flavor there. The church has to be distinct, it has to be Gentile. So you have different views. There are some that place the beginning of the church at the end of Acts. There are others who place it at the time Paul was was uh, on his first missionary trip to Greece. Others put it at the time that he was first called as an apostle in Acts chapter nine. So there are different views among hyper dispensationalists, but the one thing they have uh, they have in common is that they, uh, make it it's such a radical distinction between Israel and the church that they, they get rid of any Jewish flavor to the church initially. And their claim is that angels are never mentioned with reference to the church. Therefore, when you come to... Revelation 2 and 3, since there's an angel associated with these churches, they must be Jewish assemblies. See, that's their argument. These are Jewish assemblies because there's an angel associated. Well, first of all, uh, that's that's a misconception. 1 Corinthians 11.10, remember when Paul was dealing with the uh, head covering with the women, he said that they needed to demonstrate their subordination to their husband's authority for the sake of the angels because the angels are watching. 1 Peter 1.12 talks about the gospel and the local life in the congregation because these are things that the angels long to look into. So they, they make a mistake there. And the other mistake they make is they don't think that one nineteen outlines the book. They think the future begins with chapter 2. So what their interpretation is that these seven letters are only have to do with seven congregations in the future during the tribulation. The second view is called the historical prophetic view. The historical prophetic view. And in the historical prophetic view, which is a view that many people are familiar with and many uh, have been exposed to, the idea is that each one of these churches uh, is not only a literal historical congregation, but that it is chosen because it represents a different stage in church history, such that the Ephesian church represents the early apostolic church. Then Smyrna represents the persecuted uh, church uh, in the post-apostolic period. Then Thyatira represents the early medieval church, and Pergamum, the late medieval church, Sardis, the church needing reform, Philadelphia, the Reformation and post-Reformation, Protestant church, and then Laodicea, the modern church. The problem is that this is a forced interpretation. It just doesn't match. In fact, there are hardly two scholars who agree as to which church fits which period in uh, in history. In fact, uh, Richard Chene- Chenevo Trench who wrote a commentary on the epistles to the seven churches in Asia, writes, "...there is no agreement among themselves on the part of the interpreters of the historic prophetical school. Each one has his own solution of the enigma, his own distribution of the several epochs, or if this is too much to affirm, there is at any rate nothing approaching a general consensus among them." They just don't agree. They divide it up, each one divides it up a little differently. And if you know anything about church history... Church historians never divide the church up into seven different ages. It's divided up into the early medieval church, the Reformation church, post-Reformation church, and the modern church. Four or five divisions uh, seem apparent from history. So this idea that each church represents a different era in church history just doesn't hold water. It's Another problem with it is that it, it really mitigates against the whole idea of the imminency of the, of the rapture. Remember, the New Testament teaches that Christ could come at any moment. That's what we mean by imminent. Nothing has to occur in history. No prophecy has to be fulfilled before Jesus can come back. He can come back tomorrow. He could have come back at the time uh, of the Apostle Paul. Nothing has to be fulfilled. But if these seven churches represent seven successive eras in church history, then you have to go through all seven eras before Jesus can come back. You understand? You would have to go through the Ephesus period, the Smyrna period, the uh, Thyatira, the Pergamum, all each of these successive eras and get down to the Laodicean era before Jesus could come back. So there would have to be something happen before Jesus could come back, and this uh, violates the doctrine of the imminency of the rapture. So what we're left with is the third view, which is the historical trends view. And this is what uh, it seems to be emphasized here. And that is, first of all, it's historical in the sense that each of these churches must be treated as a literal congregation that had these strengths and these failures. These are seven literal historical congregations, but they are chosen because they represent, and remember there are seven of them, and the number seven represents completion or fulfillment. These seven churches represent the basic types that you'll find in any era, at any time in church history. Whether you're talking about the first century, fifth century, or the 21st century, you will find that every congregation fits one of these seven patterns. Every congregation fits one of these seven patterns. There are those who uh, are concerned about orthodoxy, but they have diminished their love for Christ. There are those that are lukewarm, like the Laodicean church, and that they just make the Lord Jesus Christ bilious. There are others like the Philadelphian church that are very positive and are missionary-minded, and are concerned about the gospel going out, and they're a healthy, solid, sound congregation. So you have each of these represents a type, represent the cycles in church history, and that every church represents uh, one of these. Now, this brings us to another observation. And that is one that I touched on last time, and that is that these are each addressed to a group of believers. They are addressed to a congregation. They are addressed to the angel of the church, and we have addressed this the last time, as to the meaning of the word angelos. And I pointed out that there are basically three views to the meaning, how how this is interpreted. The angel is taken by some to be a literal angel. The problem with this is almost everybody wants to interpret this as a guardian angel. That's the category they want to fit it into. And I pointed out last time by going through the ministry of angels throughout Revelation that angels in Revelation don't function as guardian angels. They function as uh those who are mediators of judgment those who are witnesses to the operation of the integrity of God in human history and that's what's happening here you have a twofold direction of these letters one there is a heavenly post of the critique sheet and then there is an earthly letter that is sent by a human messenger to each congregation and so there is a reason that the angel is addressed and that is because of his uh, role as a courtroom witness to the operation of the justice of God in local churches. second view is that this just refers to a human messenger but not the pastor. And then the third view is that this refers to the uh, pastor, the pastor teacher. One thing I haven't pointed out as we've discussed this is that if this relates to the pastor teacher, then it says to the angel the that would be the pastor of the church of Ephesus. But as I alluded to, as I alluded to a minute ago there has now been a body of believers in Ephesus for almost 50 years in that length of time you would have several hundred at least several hundred believers you would not have one congregation they, didn't, they weren't building church buildings at this early in the church age so this would be divided up into several congregations so you would not have one pastor you would have numerous pastors because you would have numerous congregations in Ephesus we don't know uh, everything that went on there's much that that is left out in history we know that Paul was there for three years and, and that Timothy pastored there for some years after that and five years after Paul left he wrote the uh, epistle to the Ephesians and this was written at approximately the same time within a year or so of the uh 1st uh, Timothy Timothy was the pastor he wrote a letter to him but he written a letter to the Ephesians it was during Paul's first imprisonment and they're both considered to be uh prison epistles so uh Timothy was a pastor but not long after that that was about 61 62 AD not long after that John showed up so John the apostle is also there but remember he refers to himself not as an apostle but as an elder in Second John and third John, emphasizing that by this stage, transitioning through the late the, the late apostolic period he 's functioning more as a pastor than as an apostle. Uh, the church has been established he 's the last apostle alive, so that is that stage of the church is is passing away. There would have been multiple pastors, so it 's not likely that you would address one pastor. In Ephesus. Now, what's going on here is it has to do with this heavenly posting of this critique sheet, but the critique sheet also goes to the uh, local congregation, and they are being evaluated. The congregation is being evaluated, not just the individual believers. Sure, the individual believers are part of the congregation, just as the individual believers here are all part of the congregation but how each of you functions in your spiritual life comprises how this congregation functions how each of you as individuals operate is evident to anybody who comes in and becomes a part of the group every group of people has certain characteristics i've pastored in three churches this is, you are my third congregation i have been involved in several other congregations. And every congregation has its own personality, its own strengths, its own weaknesses, its own failures, its own flaws. And there is a corporate evaluation. In the angelic conflict, there are two corporate testimonies. Now, one of the reasons that I like to emphasize this is because as part of American Individualism is part of what I would call American cosmic thinking. We have this emphasis on rugged individualism, it comes out of our frontier, frontier heritage. But all the emphasis on the individual—it doesn't matter what the group does, just as long as I, as an individual, am pressing on in my spiritual life. It doesn't matter whether or not I'm even involved in a local congregation. I can just sit with my tape recorder in my doctrinal notebook and I can advance to spiritual maturity. But you see, there's an emphasis in the Scripture on the body of Christ, that we are members of one another. We're not just to operate like a bunch of uh, solitary soldiers running our own uh, combat team. There's a team. We're part of the team. And we have to operate as part of the team. And there's, there's a team at Preston City Bible Church. And there's a team at North Stonington Bible Church. And there's a team at, at First Baptist. There's, these are congregations. And there's an emphasis on that, that corporate involvement. It's not just in the body of Christ, but it's also in your marriage. There's an accountability and emphasis on the corporate witness of marriage. And we get this from Ephesians chapter 5. Your marriage, uh, you're going to be evaluated not only in terms of your own spiritual life, but also in terms of the corporate witness of your marriage in the angelic conflict. And beyond that, you have the the corporate witness of the congregation. So there are two corporate operations going on in the church age. One is marriage, and the other is the local church. Jesus Christ established and ordained the local church as the corporate body within which each individual believer operates and has a ministry. And this is fundamental. We're not just a bunch of lone rangers who are out there leading their spiritual life that just happen to come and sit in church on Sunday morning and not have uh, some sort of mutual ministry and involvement in one another's lives. Sure, you have the doctrine of privacy, but whenever you get involved in somebody's life, you give up or you relinquish a certain degree of privacy. Some people are just naturally more private uh, than other people are. But in the body of Christ, we're to be involved in one another's lives, not in an intrusive, busybody, gossipy way, but in a out of genuine uh, concern and love. And this will come as a result of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And we see this emphasis here that the, the body, the local congregation, is evaluated here. So where that affects the individual is, you have to say, okay, how does this apply to me as an individual? And then second, how does it apply to uh, my ministry in terms of this particular local church? The word translated church here is the standard word for church. It is the word "ecclesia." Ek is the opening uh, preposition prefix which means out from or out of and klesia is from the verb kaleo which means to call or to. so the word etymologically means to call out from something. But it's used to refer to an assembly of people. Anytime you have a group of people that are called out from a larger group of people that assemble together, that's the idea of ecclesia. The word was used uh, several different ways in the New Testament. First of all, it was used to describe the assembling or the congregation of Israel, that is, in in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It wasn't calling them a church, it's calling them an assembly or a congregation. It did not have a technical meaning, that was just a generic meaning in the ancient world. In Acts it is used one time to refer to the assembly of a of the um, of the synagogue. So it is a non technical use of the word. But it is also used in the New Testament to designate a uh the entire body of Christ. For example in Colossians one eighteen and twenty four and in Matthew sixteen eighteen, ecclesia describes the entire body of Christ, the church and this is how we refer to it frequently as the church, that is, the entire body of Christ, which is composed of every believer from the day of Pentecost until the rapture of the church. This is the church. But it is also used to de- designate a specific assembly of believers in a local uh, context. This is found in Romans sixteen one. 1 Corinthians 1-2, and of course our passages here in Revelation 2 and 3. And then another way in which it is used, let me see, we have it used of a, of uh, the assembly of Israel in the Old Testament, number one. Number two, a generic assembly, our political assembly, uh, number two. Number three, the entire body of Christ. Number four, a specific assembly of believers in a local, and a local, uh, uh, lo- local uh, province, local local city, and then a fifth way is it's used to refer to the collection of churches or congregations in a local uh, town or city or region. For example, there were numerous congregations in Ephesus, but they're referred to as the singular church of Ephesus and the singular church of Smyrna. So you have to distinguish the different ways in which this word is used now the first the first of these epistles is written to the church of ephesus now why is it ephesus that is chosen well ephesus is the most prominent city in asia minor it was originally the the provincial capital but the provincial capital has now uh, shifted away from, from Ephesus at this stage, but it is still the largest and most prosperous of the cities in the province of Asia. It was founded about 1400 to 1300 BC by Greek, by Mycenaean Greeks. Uh, later around a thousand AD, Ionian Greeks sent colonists which established not only the city of Ephesus, but also uh, many other cities along the uh, western coast of asia minor there were 12 cities that were colonized which became the pan ionic league and ephesus was the central city the seat of power this original migration has been attributed to androclus the son of the athenian king cadrus it was during this period, the, the later period of these Ionian colonies, that they came under the power of the king of Lydia uh, by the name of Creasus. And you can see on the map that, that Lydia actually was located in this area that it later became Galatia, this central highlands region of, of Asia Minor. Creasus was the last king. He was defeated uh, by the uh, by the Greeks, he was a major benefactor of the of the temple of uh, Artemis in Athens. In fact, he had uh, twelve uh, columns built uh, in that temple. The temple of Artemis as we'll note in a minute, was the one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The terrain around. Let me skip through these slides. The terrain around Ephesus is quite um, is quite hilly, quite. Let me pull pull this up. Uh, it's quite rugged. It's a lot like the sort of the rugged hill country in in, um, in in central Texas. There are a lot of remains that have been uncovered in recent years, and uh, give us a great idea of the size of this particular city. Here's a slide showing you the terrain around Ephesus. It had, it's dominated by scrub brush during the summers. It's, it can be quite hot and dry. During the first century, it was still a major harbor. Now, it is located on the Kaster River, and as the river flowed into the Aegean, it dumps a lot of silt. Now it's about 8 to 10 miles from the water. But during the first century, it was still a major harbor, although they had uh, had to mount major dredging operations every century or so in order to uh, keep the harbor open. Uh, we have various uh, writings that give evidence to that in the first century. Because they had this harbor, Ephesus was the largest commercial center in Asia Minor, And it was also located on a major north-south trade route and an east-west trade route. So as uh, goods flowed into the harbor of Ephesus, they would be taken throughout Asia Minor and on into Persia where they would be distributed and then other goods would come back and come to Ephesus where they would be loaded on ships, taken to Greece and taken to Italy. So it was a melting pot similar to Corinth. Now, when we think of Corinth, we think of the carnal Corinthians, and we think of the fact that in the letter to the Corinthians, they had major problems because they kept trying to compromise with the uh, carnality and with the human viewpoint, paganism of their culture. The Ephesians apparently didn't have that problem; they're never chastised because of their uh, their, their compromise with human viewpoint. They seem to have taken the word, taken the word. And applied it consistently, and applied it consistently in their life. Now, Ephesus is an incredible city. The remains in Ephesus are just phenomenal. This is one of the major thoroughfares, and you can just imagine from these remains all of the massive buildings and columns that lined the major uh, roads and streets in Ephesus. Here is a picture looking across at one of the uh the smaller colosseum or amphitheater where they had town meetings and they would have various athletic contests and drama contests so it was an area that was uh very popular this is the major uh, theater in, in in Ephesus which is the site where they had the the riot uh against Paul at the when Paul was there and so many people were coming to know Christ that it was hurting the trade. See, one of the major uh, sites at Ephesus was the temple to Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was uh, it was a temple that lasted for almost 1,200 years through various stages of reconstruction. It wasn't until uh, the late 3rd century A.D., that uh, an invasion of Goths from from the southern part of Russia destroyed the the uh, temple of Ephesus, but Demetrius the silversmith and they the silversmiths had a union that produced all of these uh, figures of Artemis. Uh, they were they were losing money, so they instigated a riot against Paul, and they had a massive assembly of of people in the theater, and this theater will hold twenty four thousand. People. So when you think of Ephesus, don't think of just some small village. I mean, this was a city of about a quarter of a million, and they had large, uh, large crowds that gathered together and opposed Paul. This is standing at the where the picture is taken, standing at the theater, looking down towards the uh, harbor. And at the end of this roadway was where the old harbor uh, was situated. Ephesus had a uh, tr- culture of paganism. They not only had the temple to Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, but it had the temple of Hestia, who was the goddess of the city's public uh, uh, health. Also the temple of Serapis. There was a sanctuary of Zeus and a temple to Sibylle, the uh, mother goddess. And all of this was present. So there was a melting pot of pagan religions in Ephesus, and yet the church at Ephesus, from the first epistle to the Ephesians and this one, uh, stood firm for the word of God and had a tremendous impact. In fact, uh, the church remained strong into the sixth, uh, fifth, and sixth century A.D. In 431, uh, in A.D. 431, a famous church council was held there, which condemned the Christological heresy of Nestorius. But it wasn't long after that before the city, uh, failed, before it fell apart. There was a series of earthquakes from the, in the fifth and sixth and seventh centuries that so devastated the city that everybody, uh, left and they moved elsewhere. In fact, silting, uh, and dirt just covered the ruins and they were not rediscovered until the late 19th, uh, century. So Paul writes to the angel of the church of Ephesus. I mean, uh, Jesus Christ commissions John to write to the angel of the church of Ephesus. And he says, write, and it's an aorist active imperative which addresses immediate action. It is the word "grapho," which means simply to write something down. But I want you to notice that there is a difference between this epistle and these epistles and others in the In the New Testament, the most glaring difference is that Christ dictates these seven epistles, whereas the other New Testament epistles, for example, Corinthians, Romans, uh, Galatians, are all written by the individual apostle as he has been uh, uh, motivated by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit uh, breathes out the Word of God through them. But these seven epistles are dictated by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is also, they are also a more distant or removed kind of communication. They are, they are addressed to the angel. They are not addressed specifically to the congregation itself, although indirectly so. And they, are, they involve a critique. When you look at the other epistles, they start off with a very warm greeting. Uh, usually the Apostle Paul says that I consistently remember you in my prayers. They usually close with some sort of personal greetings to different individuals in the congregation. But there's a strong personal tone. And many of the epistles you have a structure like Romans or, or Philippians or Ephesians or Colossians where the first chapters focus on a doctrinal uh, teaching and the latter chapters talk about the application of the doctrines uh, uh, explained in the first two or three chapters. But here you have a critique or an evaluation of the congregations, unlike what you have in the other epistles. They don't have the same epistolary form. So there is something different about these epistles. Christ says to the angel of the church of Ephesus, "'Write these things,' that is what follows,' Says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand. So he is referring back to himself, but he is use, referring to a specific character or attribute of himself in each one of these epistles. And here he refers to himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. Now this goes back to the imagery that we, that we saw in chapter one. That when John was on the Isle of Patmos, he heard a loud voice behind him as of a trumpet, saying, what you see, write in a book, and send it to the seven churches. When he hears this, he turns around to look at the voice that spoke to him, and he said, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with the garment down to the feet, and girded with the chest with the golden band. And then we skip down to verse 16. He says, he had, or he held... In his right hand, seven stars. And this is the Greek verb echo. E-C-H-O. And it simply means to have or to hold. It's a typical word for picking something up or holding something in your hand. And it's simply stating that Jesus had these seven stars in his right hand. And there's a distinction between the seven stars and the seven churches. And that's important for understanding that they're not viewed together as a pastor would be viewed as part of the congregation that he is teaching. These seven stars are viewed as distinct. But when you come to chapter 2, verse 1, we don't have the same verb used. It's not echo. It is krateo, K-R-A-T-E-O, krateo. And this has the idea of holding something firmly to have close contact. In some passages it has the idea of control or authority that is associated with it. And so this is related to the fact that he's saying that he has authority over these seven stars, that are the seven angels of the seven churches. What is the idea here? Well, it fits the picture. Jesus is presented as the priest judge of the church. He is viewed here as the one who is in authority over the local church and the one who has the authority to evaluate and to judge the local local church. So it emphasizes the fact that he is the one who is in authority over these seven stars, the angels, and this relates to that judicial operation that we have discussed uh, already in re- reference to these angels. He is presented as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks in the midst of the seven uh, golden lampstands. In other words, He is not some distant Lord that is simply seated at the right hand of the Father, but He is involved in a present tense ministry or operation in terms of the local church. He is intimately involved with each congregation. This then provides the basis for His evaluation. Now next week we'll come back and we'll look at the commendation in verses 2 and 3, and perhaps we may even get into the condemnation in verse 4, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word this morning, to take a look at uh, these epistles, and to realize that you are intimately involved in each and every congregation. And each congregation, not just the individuals in it, will be held accountable uh, before the... Supreme Court of Heaven, be held accountable the judgment seat of Christ. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that they would realize the issue, uh, that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would realize that the issue is Jesus Christ. The issue is not your moral conduct. The issue is not your church involvement or church attendance. The issue is your uh, faith In Jesus Christ. Scripture says that salvation is based on faith alone. In Christ alone, it is not based on who we are or what we have done. So right now, right where you sit, you can be sure and certain of your salvation by simply believing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.